Before we start this podcast, I have a small favor to ask you. If you have ever enjoyed one of these episodes, please hit the follow button if you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button down below. It helps more than you can imagine build my dream of getting this show onto the top charts and changing entrepreneurs' lives. Thank you very much, and enjoy this episode. All aboard the MBIT Podcast with Seamus Madan. Dory, thanks for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Thanks for having me. I want to begin with your earliest years. What do you think would be the earliest piece of context that I would have to know about you to understand the person sitting in front of me today? That's a good question. Never stop to think about that. But what comes to mind when you ask that question is I come from an entrepreneurial family. A bit of background about myself, I was born in Israel. When I was eight months old, my parents, we moved to the Bay Area and my dad was getting relocated for a job. He was working in tech back in like late 80s, early 90s. So he was relocated for a job and instead of a three-year relocation, we ended up staying in the States for about 13 years. My parents ended up opening their own startup in the early 90s. So after the relocation assignment ended, they ended up opening their own company and running it for probably about a decade until they sold it in, in 2000 or 2001. And so I would say probably that's something that influenced me a lot growing up in a home where both my parents were the founders of a company, grew built and grew a successful company in the Silicon Valley. So obviously, I, I, in retrospect, I think that influenced a lot of who I am today and how I think and how I think about entrepreneurship and being independent and building a company. I guess that's what comes to mind. What type of companies uh, were your parents building and how did that like specifically influence your entrepreneurial mindset? Yeah. So the, they, they were building uh, a cam and CAD design. So I'm not sure how familiar you are with that, but like, like true Silicon Valley, Silicon <laughs> wafers and, and yep. uh, photo plotting and things like that. So that was the type of company they were, uh, they were building. Obviously, back then, software wasn't as big. So there was a lot of hardware and uh, some components of software. So that's the type of company they built. And around how that influenced, look, growing up in a home where, for the most part, both my parents were at work every day from you know 7 a.m. until I remember my mom getting home around dinner time, but my dad would get home every night around 10, 11 p.m. That was the routine. That was what it, what it took to, to succeed and build a company. Growing in that mindset, hearing conversations, like I remember as a kid in, until I was 13 growing up and hearing my dad on calls and conversations and hearing how he thinks about things. And you know him and my mom debating topics around you know strategy and finance and employees and things like that. I, I remember that as a kid, actually. I haven't thought about it until you asked this question, but in retrospect now I remember that. I think that is an is a environment which you grow in, which fosters entrepreneurship, fosters risk-taking, fosters that kind of behavior. And so I think that ultimately that obviously influenced me, gave me the an insight into what it means to be an entrepreneur, the, the, the highs, the lows, that's what comes to mind. And now, so you have this entrepreneurial mindset and background instilled in you from a very young age. What was the first experience where you're like, hey, I want to start maybe either building a company of my own or experimenting with this world of entrepreneurship? So I guess the first, the first uh, really young experience I had, this was when we were still in the States. So I think I was like 11 or 12 years old. I, w I wanted to find a way to make money. I was passionate about sports 
sports tickets and sports events. And so I remember kind of the first entrepreneurial thing I did was I would get, this is probably like not even your times, but I would, we would get the Sunday classifieds and in the classifieds you would post, people post what they're willing to buy and what they're selling. And there was no Ticketmaster back then. There was no StubHub and things like that. And so what literally people were posting were like, and this was, we were in the Bay. So people were posting, I'm selling, you know, two tickets to the 49ers game this weekend or next weekend for whatever dollars. And then there were people in the, in the classifieds of looking to buy and they would post looking for 49ers tickets to this upcoming game. And I would say that was the first entrepreneurial journey I, I, or thing that I can recall that I did. And I would literally get on the phone dial people that were selling, dial people that were buying and mediate the, the, the deal. And I would literally meet at the Starbucks, you know, in Sunnyvale at, you know, 10 a.m. for the person selling at 1030 for the person buying and would broker, broker that deal and take a commission on that. And so I think that was like the earliest, earliest signs of that I can recall of kind of entrepreneurship. And that was around probably 11 or 12 years old that when I was doing that. And, and obviously didn't build, didn't found Ticketmaster, but, but I think that was kind of like the, the early experiences I had. And, and obviously from then on kind of went into high school and, and, and to the university and I served in the IDF in Israel. I not thinking off the top of my mind on like other, I think I had a bunch of kind of random jobs or entrepreneurial things I kind of did in high school. I think I, there was a point in time where I would scan photos. This was like when scanning really became popular and you can upload printed photos onto the cloud or onto a USB. So I remember doing kind of two projects in high school as, as kind of, maybe you could call them entrepreneurial, but it was scanning photos and then storing it onto a USB or to a, or a CD. And another one was transferring video cassettes of like home videos that people recorded the camcorders onto DVD as well, right? How do you digitalize that? So I remember doing some of those and I'm sure there's other kind of wacky things that I did in, in high school that I'm not recalling, but I would say like proper into like building a company entrepreneurial. So post high school, post IDF service in university, I started my first company in Israel. I've been an entrepreneur for the last decade. So I finished my military service in a, 10 years ago. And so it's actually now this year is 10 years. And so I've started three companies since then. The earliest one was in Israel back in, in 2014. And so kind of from there, really kind of honed into my grown up entrepreneurial journeys, I'd say. You mentioned you're starting to want to make money at just 11 or 12 years old. I know most 12 year olds aren't thinking about making money. When did the concept of I guess the importance of making money really start to enter your mind and why was that so motivating for you? I have no idea why it was motivating. It was exciting. It was the feeling or the thrill. I think there's a thrill in making money because you have a hypothesis that there's value in something. And when someone actually goes and pays for that value, that there's a thrill or there's like a shot of dopamine that like, holy, like I created something from nothing. One of the startups I want to delve into that you founded was a company called Ernie. You founded that startup in 2015. What was it? What were you trying to accomplish? Yeah. So as I was mentioning before that, founded the first company in Israel. It was actually kind of a social networking dating app. This was like kind of pre-Tinder times. We had raised a bit of seed round for it and decided to move to the U.S., 
in order to launch the company and market it because obviously the, the market in Israel is very small and if you're building a social app you want to be in a market that's big so obviously the US is a big market so we came to the US to launch the the the, the product and, and and go to market there and literally on one of the first weekends that we arrived in SF from Israel my co-founder and I we were invited to a dinner an investor gala dinner and the, we got the invitation. The dress code was blazers and like suit jackets and like formal. Coming from Israel and as scrappy entrepreneurs, we didn't have any nice clothes. So prior to the event, we went to Zara to, to buy blazers. I ended up buying a blazer for like $130 at Zara. My co-founder, I thought it's a bit expensive just for this one event. I'm not going to need it anymore. I'll just borrow one from a friend. So we ended up borrowing one from a friend. I bought the jacket. We went to the event. Everything was great. Two months later, and we're still working on, on our previous social networking app and, and kind of focused on that. But two months later, there was another event. My co-founder was shopping online and saw the exact same blazer on Zara.com that I, ha I had bought for half the price. So it was on sale now. It was 50% off. It was going for $65. And him and I are super competitive. So he showed it to me immediately and was all proud and boasted that he beat me on the price and got a better price for the blazer. And I remember that being like really frustrated and really upset. It didn't make sense to me that I had bought something and paid double compared to what, what he paid. And so I had remembered that someone, I, I don't even remember when, someone had told me about like credit card benefits, that a lot of the benefits that come with credit cards. One of them is called price protection, which pretty much guarantees that if you buy an item and the price of that item drops typically within 90 days of your purchase, you are actually owed a refund for that product. And so I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to try this out. It, I was really frustrated that I paid double. I literally went through this rigorous and manual and painful process of submitting a claim to Chase, to my credit card company at the time. I had to literally fax a screenshot of the cheaper price. But bottom line, I kind of submitted all the documents to prove that I had paid double and that the price was cheaper now. And after about two weeks, I got a check in the mail for $65. And that was like a moment where like, I'm like, oh my God, this is insane. This is like one product that by chance I, I track the price of. What if we could do this at scale? What if we can automate this? What if we can track the price of every single product across every consumer in America and help get them a refund? And so that's kind of what got me introduced to the opportunity that's kind of how ernie started yeah let's dive into ernie for a bit so you discover this problem you want to make it scalable what were the first steps in getting that done yeah so we kind of had that holy shit moment like i said but remember we're, we're we're actually three founders at the time we're working on this social networking app we have some money that we raised for it things are going okay but they're like not completely picking up traction and we had a tradition between us three founders that every we, we were really like day in, day out together. We were like scrappy 20-something-year-old founders. Every weekend, someone else would kind of organize an activity from the three of us that we would all do together. So literally the weekend after, it was Elon, my, my previous CTO's turn, and he had read about a hackathon that MasterCard was putting on. And so we said, let's go for the fun. We went to the hackathon MasterCard. At the hackathon, the kind of the parameters for the hackathon was building something around social giving that integrates, you know, credit card benefits and credit card APIs and things like that. And so we were sitting there thinking, okay, what can we build here? And then we just said, hey, we just had this amazing experience with like buying something online, getting the price protection refund for the difference. Why don't we build an app where you take a picture of the receipt? 
and automatically scans the price. And then if it finds a better price, there was an aspect of social giving. So like you get a refund, but half the refund goes back to uh, a charity of your choice. And so we kind of built and hacked together in 24 hours, kind of an MVP version of that. We actually called it at the hackathon, Dave and not Ernie. Dave was like donate and save. So we combined it to be Dave. We, we presented it at the hackathon and we ended up winning first place at the hackathon. It was like the most competitive hackathon MasterCard. MasterCard did this kind of worldwide, but we were in the Silicon Valley one. So obviously the Silicon Valley is a very competitive one. There's a lot of great tech, tech talent. So we ended up uh, winning first place. One of, one of the judges there was an SVP at MasterCard. And he kind of pulled us aside after and said, listen, guys, this is an amazing idea. I think like we've been trying to, you know, solve the pain point of credit card benefits and how do we make them usable for customers. We'd love to support you guys in any way possible and love to see you guys build this out. So I think that's kind of what also gave us kind of the kick in the butt. And we realized that the potential is really big. We started doing a lot of market research and figured out that the amount of money that's left on the table every year due to price shops in the U.S. is about $50 billion. And so uh, after kind of understanding the market, seeing the excitement around the product and getting kind of the, the uh, social proof or the, the proof from SVPs at MasterCard that actually ended up writing kind of the first check in the company, uh, we were pretty much off to the races and decided to kind of pivot, in a sense, what we were working on the social uh, app and just migrate all our resources into building what, what then became Ernie. And you're definitely solving this problem, right? So MasterCard comes up to you, you win first place in the hackathon, but for any great business to exist, obviously they have to make money for operations to continue. What was the way Ernie was going to make money? Yeah, so we started, our, our, our business model evolved a bunch over the years, obviously, just like any business. I think it's, it's important to continue to evolve a business model. Like if you stay static, actually think you're probably losing money and you're undercharging. You should continue to kind of challenge yourself on what's the what's the right business model and continue to iterate and test those things. But where we started off is we we try to keep things simple and we charged a 25% fee for every dollar we saved you. So it was free to use, but every time we saved you money, we would charge a 25% commission for that. And so that's kind of how we started over time. The business model evolved a bunch. At certain points, we charged a subscription. We had like a monthly and annual subscription. So we had a bunch bunch of other offerings that were part of the product. And so we, we kind of played around with pricing a bunch. But at our core, it was a 25% success fee. Got it. And did you raise venture capital or external capital for the business? And what, what was that process like? So we raised in total close to 15 won $5 million in funding. We raised a seed round of a few million and then an A round of about 9 million. And so in total, we raised close to $15 million in funding over the lifetime of the company from 2015 until 2021. That's kind of over those years, that's the amount of capital we raised. And, and we had great funds support us. In our seed round, we had Sweet Capital which are the founders of Candy Crush and King. I don't know if you like the gaming company, so the founders had a fund. Yeah, I've heard of it, capital. yeah. <laughs> we had uh, Comcast Ventures. We had Science, which is like an incubator VC fund based in LA. And then in our A round, we had Mayfield lead the A round, which is a great firm out in, in, in Palo Alto, Menlo Park. And then obviously lots of awesome angels throughout the process from the chain smokers to you know, entrepreneurs and founders of companies. We actually had a successful sale two years ago, two and a half years ago. So yeah, so the outcome of that was actually good. 
we did have troubles. Like, I, I won't lie. Everything's not, like, amazing and dandy. So if you think about it, obviously, as we started to scale and grew and grew three and a half million users, um, price, not every merchant loved us. And some, some loved us and understood what we were, what we were doing. Um, but some of the merchants obviously didn't uh, necessarily resonate with what we're doing because if you think about it, they sold the product for a certain item and now there's technology that's automating this and they're giving out a lot more money than what they anticipated to give out. Not every merchant liked that program. And so we, we definitely had kinds of ups and downs throughout the process, uh, but we made some uh, really good pivots and adjustments throughout the product and launched other verticals and other things. And eventually we sold the company two and a half years ago. Got it. And I know there was a company that you did found. I, I have it wrong in my notes, but what was the company that you founded that you had to shut down and why did that happen? Yeah. So it was the first company that we founded, the social networking dating app. So we did Got shut it. that company down. And you're probably right about your notes about having something around Ernie. So during the, the cycle of Ernie, I think it was like between our seed and A round, we were close to shutting down actually. Our our finances, like our runway was running low. We were running out of cash. Our investors didn't necessarily want to continue to fund the business. So we had kind of prepared what would happen if the company needed to shut down. But we actually kind of raised more money. Things took off. We kind of pivoted the business a bit. But And, and things took off in a really meaningful way. And that's how we were able to sell it a few years later. But I did shut down the first company, which was which was Hashnap. And what were the pain points that you had around shutting down a company, the logistics behind it, and going through that process? Sure. So, so I think I'll share a bit of like, I, the, the first one was, was literally many years ago, so I, I, it's less fresh in my mind. But I think I, what's more fresh is what happened with Ernie. Um, so we, we kind of sat in a board meeting uh, um, and looked at the numbers. And one of our board members had asked me, hey, Dory, um, runway doesn't look too good. Um, I think we need to consider the option of shutting down, right? And that's something that as like an entrepreneur and a founder, you never really stop to think about. You're always like running forward. How do I raise the next round? How do I make revenue? How do I make payroll, right? You don't, you don't even bring up. It's almost like a, a word that I remember, like you're afraid to even say it. Like no one could say it. Like it's, a, it's an illegal word to use in the company, right? Like we're never going to shut down. So we had one of the investors ask for me to put together a shutdown analysis for the business. So pretty much... And I had no idea what the meant time, but they, they wanted to know, like, what are the liabilities? What are the timelines? Do we owe anyone money? Do, how much capital we have to have in order to shut down properly? Do we need to do layoffs? Things like that. And I didn't know the answer to any of those questions in the board meeting. So I said, naturally, hey, let me follow up and get back to you. I went home that evening from the board meeting. And, and naturally, kind of the first thing I did is I went to Google. And I, and I Google, how do you shut down a company, right? Like, I don't know how to shut down a company. I've never done, like, done it before. And so I went to Google and started to search. I, I literally got lost, didn't find any substantial information, couldn't find any service or software that can help me with that process. And so that w w didn't yield any results. And so the next thing I kind of did or the, w what I was thinking would probably help was let's talk to other founders in my network that have previously shut down. And let's figure out, you know, how how this process went for them and how they dealt with it and who helped them. And so I started going on LinkedIn and searching for keywords shut down in my network. And I didn't find anyone. And this was like mind-boggling. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, the stats are most companies shut down. Why, why can I not find anyone? And I started realizing that people just don't like writing on LinkedIn that they shut down their company, right? People love boasting on LinkedIn about their success and their wins and their exits. But when it comes to, like, shutting down, it's almost like it's a taboo topic that no one really wants to talk about. 
And so that didn't help me. And so the next thing I naturally did was I reached out to our lawyer. I mean, we were a fun, well-funded company. We were using a top law firm. And so I reached out to the partner that, that's representing our company. I said, hey, I need, I need help putting a shutdown plan together. And, and his reaction was like, oh, shutting down? Yeah, we don't really like dealing with that. You know, we're kind of busy. We're happy to refer you to another law firm. I have a friend of a friend in, you know, Colorado. He has a boutique firm. He can maybe help you out, right? And I was kind of like thrown off of like, wait, you're my lawyer. You're supposed to help me. And so I started realizing that the lawyers don't like dealing with this either. And actually our accountant said the same thing. Our accountant's like, hey, we don't deal with shutdowns. We're happy to refer you elsewhere, but that's not something we typically deal with. And so I found myself kind of at a really painful situation. If you think about it, potentially at the lowest point of my career in my company, I just want visibility. I want help. I'm stressed out of my mind. And I think that's the pain that many founders feel when they're in that position. It's a painful one to be in. And, and all you want is transparency, visibility, a platform, something to help you. And I think that's the pain that I really felt going through that process. Why didn't your lawyer and accountant want to help out with you putting down together a shutdown plan? So I, I think for each one, the answer is a bit different, but we've spent a lot of time speaking to lawyers in the space and law firms, but I think it comes down to what typically happens is the attorneys that deal with wind downs and shutdowns, they are the same type, they're the same corporate attorney that deals with like fundraising and M&A and contracts and things like that. That is where they spend the majority of the time. That's what's kind of their bread and butter. That's what they have the most experience in. That's what typically makes them the most money. Shutting down a company for most law firms, it's more if they do it as a service. It's kind of like a lost cause and they, and they don't make a lot of money from that. If you think about it, it's a customer that's about to churn. So you prefer to spend your, your time as a lawyer and as a partner on the companies that are growing, that are scaling, that are raising money. And so I think that, that obviously um, adds to it. I think also... Shutting down is complex and it requires a level of expertise. And so in law, you, you have bankruptcy attorneys that specialize in bankruptcy proceedings, which is a very specific type of shutdown. Most companies don't go into bankruptcy and I highly hope that companies don't have to go there because it's a painful public process. But there's attorneys that specialize in that. There aren't attorneys that specialize in shutdowns. Like I mentioned, the same attorneys that deal with like M&A and fundraising are the ones that are supposed to deal with shutdowns. And because they're dealing with 100 other things, they don't have the expertise there. So I think also kind of the lack of knowledge and experience that attorneys typically have kind of make them shy away from wanting to deal with it. Founding a company is much easier to do than shutting one down. Why is it so complex to shut down a company? So one, I don't think it should be that way. I don't think that shutting down a company needs to be more complex than starting one. If, if you think about it, it's actually really interesting. As we started digging into the space and into the market, we realized a few things. One, when I went through it, I, I really felt alone. And I started asking myself, am I the first business in America shutting down? Like that's what was going through my mind because I'm like, there's no one wants to help me. There's no services out there. There's no software to help automate this or, or streamline this. I literally thought I was the first business in America shutting down. Obviously I'm exaggerating, but that was kind of the feeling I had. And so I started digging into the market and space and started realizing that there's actually a lot of companies that shut down. And if you look at the numbers, there's between 700,000 and a million companies that shut down every year in the US. So that's like a really big market. And then I, I kind of double clicked and said, hey, let's look at the amount of companies that incorporate every year, right? And then if you look at the stats in the US, there's about 800,000 companies that incorporate every year. 
So if you look at like the overall U.S. economy and the amount of businesses that exist in the economy, it's been kind of flat, growing a few basis points year over year. Because if you have, on average, let's just say 700,000 shutting down, 800,000 incorporating, so it's kind of flat, maybe growing a bit. But it really boggled me that there are tens and maybe hundreds of companies that help you incorporate but none that help you shut down, right? So if you think about the companies that help you incorporate, it's like the legal Zooms and the rocket lawyers and the Zen businesses of the world. And there's like endless amount of like Taylor brands, right? There's endless amounts of companies that help you incorporate, but really none that help you shut down. So I think obviously we can talk at depth about this, but there's reasons why the company's focused on, on incorporating. And that's has to do with kind of like, you know, helping a business start off. It's an exciting time. The revenue biz, the revenue model looks a bit different than, in the space when a company shuts down. But I think that that's like the, the fact that there has been decades of companies that help you incorporate and technology around that is what actually makes it easy. I think the fact that like legal zooms of the world and even Stripe Atlas, which recently came out, the fact that they've been able to automate streamline and build an interface that is user friendly. That's what makes creating a company easy. And the lack of that is what makes a, shutting down a company so difficult or, or complex. And so I think what we're trying to do is, and what we're doing is building a platform to help automate and streamline that so that it's just as easy to shut down a company as it is to start one. And so I think that that's what's created the complexity, just the lack of innovation and the lack of, 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 of technology in that space. And that's something that we're hoping and that we will overcome. Yeah, and that company that you founded is called Simple Closure. You're trying to automate that wind-down process. How do you automate it? What are you going through to actually automate that process? Yeah, great question. So a bit about how it works is we try to build it in a very simple, streamlined fashion so that any person, you know, obviously not lawyer, but any founder, any business owner can come to the platform and in a matter of days be able to shut down their company. Just to give you a, just to give you perspective, the average time now to shut down a company is nine months, a startup. So it's typically months and sometimes years to shut down a company. Our goal is to drive that down to days and weeks. And so that's, that's a huge value proposition in, in, in using our platform. And also, I think what we've seen a lot of times is a lot of people that try to shut down companies on their own, or even with a lawyer many times, they end up making mistakes in the process. And if you make mistakes in shutting down a company, it actually doesn't go away. We see a lot of founders and business owners that end up getting penalties, fines, lawsuits months and years later, like two years after you shut down a company, you'll suddenly get a, a letter in the mail that you owe the state of Delaware $3,000 in taxes that you didn't pay, right? And so that starts to become this like really, really painful process. And so we wanted to build a platform and a system that gives, that one does it at a fraction of a time, Second, gives full transparency and visibility to all stakeholders into the process and what's going on. And most importantly, we wanted to build a platform that gives business owners and founders the peace of mind that they shut down the company properly and that there's no skeletons in the closet. There's no, you know, no stones left unturned. You're not suddenly going to get like a, a complaint or a, or a penalty or a fine years later, right? We wanted to really give closure to founders at a time when they're, again, obviously stressed and want to put this behind them so that they can move on to their next thing as quick as possible. Um, and so in order to do that, we really built a, a, a platform that has a few simple steps. Uh, it starts with onboarding. In onboarding, we allow customers to fill out our onboarding form that answers a few questions about the business. They're able to upload documents that we need in order 
to properly uh, help with the shutdown. So for example, cap table, operating agreement, safes or convertible note documents, right? So they're able to upload that to the, uh, the platform. Based on that information, um, as well as technology that we've built out to proactively go and find information that's available on public databases, uh, our system puts together a shutdown plan that is tailored to the company. So that, that gets populated in our platform. You as a user, you can log in. You can see exactly the step-by-step plan for shutting down your business. Everything is personalized to your company. So if you're a Delaware corporation or a Wyoming LLC, or if you have foreign entities in certain states, or you have you use a certain payroll provider like Augusto or a Rippling or a Trinet, right? All of that is taken in consideration. And in our system, what it does is it generates a personalized shutdown plan that is tailored to the company. And, and in a sense, the way to think about it is anything that we can automate through technology, our platform will automate for you to really take off, to take you know the headache, to take work off your plate. And a- anything we can't automate, it will be served to you, we like to say, on a silver platter in our, in our platform. So there are certain things that we still cannot automate yet. Obviously, we want to get to a point where everything is fully automated, but whatever we can automate for you, we will. And it really is able to bring that process, like I said, from nine months down to typically a few days or a few weeks. And how many customers do you have right now, or how many customers approximately have used this service? Yeah. So we don't share customer numbers publicly. I will say we've been in stealth since the beginning of the year. We announced our public beta about a month ago, together with our pre-seed raise. The growth has been exponential, and, and I'm not exaggerating. It's been overwhelming in a good way. We're literally all hands on deck. I was kind of doing all the initial calls with customers and sales calls in the early days. And when we launched, it's kind of been like all hands on deck. Our, our, our legal team is doing calls with customers, like sales calls, right? That's how backed up we are. And so it's just been uh, overwhelming growth. And I think what's, what's just you know, exciting about that growth is you really see a true pain point in the market. You see founders that have been struggling with this. And I'm just so proud of the team and glad that we can really have a product that saves, solves a pain point um, for customers. And how are you acquiring that growth? Because, for example, for sales pitches, it's very easy to cold email a company and say, hey, I know how to 2x your revenue or make things a lot easier for you to help you grow. It's a lot more difficult to do that and say, hey, I want to help shut you down. So what are the, like, the key acquisitions channels that you're using to acquire com- uh, customers? Sure. So uh, we've been lucky enough where uh, all of our inbound to date has been word of mouth and investors that know about our platform that are recommending their portfolio companies that need to shut down to come to us. Obviously, kind of the next phase of the company is now we're going to be focused a lot more on go-to-market. So obviously, there's different types of partnerships that we are working on to help kind of how do we get to the customer at the right time? Because obviously, if the company just raised money, that's an example of like, they, they probably don't need to shut down right now. So we're, we, we have, a, without sharing too much, but we have uh, some things in the pipeline where we're really focused on how do we get in front of the customer at the right point in time. And right now, I mean, you have one service. It does one thing pretty well. But the biggest problem is after customers use the service or they're done, hopefully they never have to use it again. And that's pretty much it. Have you thought about like maybe providing supplemental services that allow the customer to continue being able to use your platform or your company? Totally. I think it's a great question. Obviously, it's something that's top of mind. We've been spending a lot of time thinking about how do we create a, uh, a continuation of the product or platform 
I think the way to think about it is there are additional pain points post shutting down. And our goal as a platform and as a product is how do we how do we solve and how do we address those customer pain points? So the way that the way I like to think about it is any pain point in that process, either before shutdown, during shutdown, or even after shutdown, we will continue to evolve and build in order to serve our customers and, and help relieve those pain points. So totally. more to come on that. Excited to hear uh, what's next. So do you raise venture capital money for this business? I believe one and a half million, right? Yeah, so we we raised a small pre-seed round of one and a half million. Honestly, awesome investors. I wasn't planning on originally raising money. Like we, I had started the business. We were kind of bootstrapped, and we were making revenue from day one, right? So I was kind of thinking, hey, let's like you know start to make significant revenue and then go out and raise a round. I ended up attending a fintech conference earlier this year, and just came across a friend that I hadn't seen in a while, and he asked me what I was up to. And I told him we're working on Simple Closure, and he's like, "Listen, I have a friend here at the conference. He's a partner at a fund. He's gonna love this. You have to talk to him about it." So I, I said, "Sure, happy to talk about the product, but we're not we're not raising." Anyhow, ended up meeting the partner. His name's John. He's awesome, and just shared what what we were working on. He got super excited about it. Said, "Look, love it. I want you to meet another partner at the fund. He's here at the conference as well." Met him the next day. We just like chatted. Uh, most of the day about what we were building and and kind of what we were working on and ended the day with with an offer to invest in the company and I had told them again we're not raising but but really appreciate it but then I had some time to kind of digest think about it talk with them about a bit about it a bit more and um, analyze the situation a bit more and I think it came back to me thinking about there's a lot of talk in the market that the end of this year beginning of next year and going into 2024 and 2025 we're kind of going toward a recession in tech and there's a lot of startups that are going to uh, unfortunately shut down and wind down. And so as I kind of like looked at the market and the opportunity and the timing, I found a lot of value in raising capital and accelerating development faster versus kind of bootstrapping and, 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 and taking longer to grow. Right. And so I was kind of at a point where like, okay, do we want to bootstrap this and have a product in like six to 12 months or do we want to raise money now, accelerate development, have more resources, have a product ready in three months, right? And so I think that's kind of what guided me in that decision-making. And ultimately, I, I thought there was more value to have a product up and running sooner rather than later. And so I ended up raising a small pre-seed round, bringing them on, bringing another fund on, Rex and Cambrian Ventures, which is a great fund. And then also just awesome, awesome angels that are part of the cap table, which are, you know, SMBs, founders, operators, law firms, things like that. And before we wrap it up here, where can the audience, one, learn more about Simple Closure, and two, if you could give one big lesson to the next generation of founders, what would it be? Yeah, where to learn more, go to simpleclosure.com, just like it sounds, uh, simpleclosure.com, one word. Obviously, you can follow us on Twitter, you can follow us on LinkedIn, but I would say the most of the information is on Simple Closure website. One lesson for a founder. I think I have an investor that I really value that I've you know been in touch with for probably close to a decade. And he introduced me to a term that I didn't know as well. And I really, really believe that the best entrepreneurs have that character. It's not a term, it's characteristic, right? It's that they have this characteristic. And it's something called tenacity. I think it's a word that really represents 
the qualities and characteristics that are required from founders and entrepreneurs. And I think the most successful ones that I've seen, they have a level of tenacity that is to be admired. And so I think my, my feedback to entrepreneurs is like, you know, you have to have tenacity. Having tenacity will, is, is kind of a core characteristic or quality that I think success, a lot of successful entrepreneurs have. And so try to look for that in yourself. Try to look for that in co-founders you partner with. Try to think what that means and what, like, what that translates into in terms of how you operate and how you think. But to me, I think that that's a, a very important quality to have as a founder. Um, yeah. Very much agree. All right. Well, thank you, Dory, for taking the time to join the show. For anyone interested, we'll have a link to Simple Closure in the episode description. Hopefully, you don't have to use it, but if you do, it's there. And thank you very much, Dory. I greatly appreciate your time. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you.